So I want you to imagine for a moment that there is a group in Bellevue that hates us, hates First City Church. Can't imagine why anybody would hate us, but imagine that there is a group that opposes us. And so they protest our services. Let's say they break into our offices and, and completely ransack our office. They hack our social media accounts. They, they begin to spread lies and rumors and slander about us. And may, maybe even they start kind of slashing our tires or, God forbid, they would start physically attacking us. But for whatever reason, they are opposing us with all that they are. And because they're really good at covering their tracks, they never get caught. No one's ever arrested. No one's brought to justice for that. Now imagine they all become Christians. They all turn from their sin. They repent of their sin and they follow Christ. And so now they're showing up on Sunday mornings, showing up at your gospel community. What would you do with that? What would you do if those who once opposed you, once slandered, once attacked you, now are your brothers and your sisters in Christ? Imagine looking across the room on a Sunday morning and seeing someone who, hey, that person attacked me last week. Or sitting across the table in gospel communion and say, I know this person has lied and slandered about me. What would you do with that? What would you do with the reality that those who were once enemies are now family. Now, I'm not saying that such a situation wouldn't call for some, some conversation and some wrestling through the nature of repentance and forgiveness and restitution for wrong. But at the core, would you be happy that they are now your brother and sister in Christ? Would you rejoice that God has poured out his blessing, poured out his mercy on them and saved them? So I want us to wrestle with this question honestly I don't want us to just give the sort of Christianese answer, yeah, of course I'd be happy. Because there's a reason the book of Jonah is in the Bible. There's a reason chapter four is in the Bible. There's a reason why Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son. Because sometimes we have a hard time with God's mercy. Sometimes we struggle with the people God shows mercy to. Sometimes we don't want God to show mercy. We'd rather he show judgment. Sometimes we can even find God's mercy unfair and unjust. And if we're not careful, that attitude can calcify in our hearts and cause us to be hardened and calloused and indifferent to those who need Jesus. And so as we move into the final chapter of Jonah, there's three questions that I want us to reflect on from this chapter. The first is, whom do we, notice my proper English, <laughs> why do we, and three, do we? So three questions that I want to confront us with, want us to reflect upon from this chapter as we consider the nature of God's mercy. So this first question of whom do we? So within the structure of the narrative of of the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter four is kind of this parallel event that takes place alongside Jonah three. So if you're here last week, you remember Jonah chapter three is where God, where Jonah goes to Nineveh, proclaims this message and Nineveh repents. So the entire city repents and turns from their evil and turns towards God. And chapter four is sort of this moment of, hey, what's Jonah up to while all of this is going on? And so we, we kind of have this meanwhile back at the ranch moment of what Jonah is up to. And we see that Jonah is upset at what is taking place in Nineveh. Verse 1 says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. So Jonah is angry, and what is it that displeases him exceedingly? Well, it's God relenting of his judgments 
and, bringing, and not bringing the hammer down on Nineveh. Jonah is upset that God has shown mercy to Nineveh. And consider for a moment how crazy this is, because imagine you have been given a really difficult mission. Like, go into this situation, and it's really difficult, it's really dangerous, and then you're successful, and you're angry about it. So imagine being sent to, like, the Middle East or to ISIS or to a terrorist organization. Let's say a a group from First City goes there. And we're praying for them. We're worried about their safety. We're hoping that God does something miraculous and powerful. And they come back and they rejoice. Hey, God saved the entire ISIS organization. And we're all mad about it. Crazy, huh? But yeah, here is Jonah, upset about success. And then Jonah has this moment of great honesty about his anger in verses 2 and 3. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Here Jonah admits why he's mad. Here Jonah admits why he ran in the first place. It wasn't because the mission was so hard. It wasn't because he was afraid for his life. Jonah ran. Jonah is angry because he knew God would save Nineveh. Again, just for a moment, man, I wish I had Jonah's faith. Like a lot of times I'm cynical about sharing the gospel, especially with people who seem very far from God. Like there's no way they're going to listen. Jonah is so confident God can save, he runs in anticipation that God is going to save Nineveh. So Jonah at least has that going for him. But hear what he is saying. He is essentially saying, God, I don't want you to be good. God, I don't want you to be the God that you are. Like, I know you are a God of mercy. I know you are a God who saves, and I don't want you to be that God. I want you to be the God who just brings judgment onto people. I would rather die than live in a world where you are merciful to people like the Ninevites. And it would be very easy for us to critique Jonah's extreme anger. It would be very easy for us to judge his bitterness. But come on, let's not be so self-righteous. We all have our lists. We all have our people that we would rather God not save. We have our people that we would rather God not bless. We all have people that we wish God would judge. Who is it for you? Who's on your list? Who are the people that you would just rather write off and consign to judgment than rather God save? And we can just start listing off categories of people. Maybe for you, it's liberals. Maybe for others of you, it's Trump supporters. Maybe it's some corrupt politician. Maybe it's someone who pushes unbiblical sexual ethics on people and celebrates that. Maybe it's the abortion doctor in town. Maybe it's an atheist or Muslims or New Age mystics. Maybe it's addicts or abusers. Maybe it's the liars and the the manipulators. Maybe it's the prideful, the sexually immoral. Maybe it's the greedy capitalists or the people that you think are lazy freeloaders. Maybe it's terrorists. I don't know. We all have our lists. But let's take it a step further. Make it a little bit more personal. Who are the specific people in your life the people you interact with, or maybe the people that have hurt you, 
Not some vague, abstract group out there in the world, but right in front of you in your daily experience. Who are those people? And maybe it's not that you, you, you don't harbor animosity. You're not walking around in this constant state of anger and, and frustration at them. Maybe you're not consciously willing that, that God would judge them because you're too godly for that. But who are the people that when God blesses them or when God doesn't stop them from doing something, you get angry and you begin to question the character of God? Your feelings don't come out in active dislike But when those people are blessed by God or they do that thing again that you wish God would stop or judge them for, man, you start feeling it in your lower back. Start moving your way up your spine. Your your spine tightens. Your fists clench. Your neck gets stiff. Your heart gets hard. Who are those people? Whom do you wish God would not show mercy to? So we reflect on whom do we. Now the question is, why do we? We all have our lists, but the question is why? Why do we keep these lists? Why do we have those we would rather God not save and show mercy to? Well, for Jonah, Nineveh represented opposition, extreme opposition. As we've talked about in past weeks, Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria, and Assyria was this very brutal empire. They were sort of the terrorists of the ancient world, and they were political enemies and threats to Israel. And they'd already inflicted damage upon Israel. And so Jonah sees the Ninevites as the worst of the worst. These are terrible people who mean to do my nation and me harm. And so Jonah doesn't want to see them saved. Jonah doesn't want to see God to bless them. He wants them wiped off the map. But really, was it the reality of the evil and brutality of Nineveh and the fact that they're a political threat to Israel that that made Jonah not want God to show them mercy? Well, okay, in one sense, maybe. Sure, we can grant that. Understandable. But there's something else going on here. And so God sort of uses this living parable, this sort of live action object lesson to reveal Jonah's heart. Here's what we read in verses 5 through 9. And so Jonah goes out, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plants. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plants so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plants? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. So Jonah leaves the city. He goes out into the countryside, which is a pretty harsh, brutal environment. And so he sets up this sort of makeshift shelter so he can take some shade. And he's sitting there waiting to see what's going to happen. And then God supernaturally has this plants grow over him to give him shade. And Jonah's happy about this. And so don't miss what's happening here. Here is Jonah off in the countryside throwing a, a, a hissy fit. And God shows him mercy. He is angry at the very mercy of God, the very character of God, and yet God is still showing him mercy. But then the next day, God appoints a worm 
and the worm eats the plants. And then God turns up the temp, so to speak, by having a scorching wind blow along with the sun beating down. And so now Jonah is faint. He's in a place of weakness. And, and this experience completely exposes Jonah's heart. And it holds up a mirror to us. So we, we will see in Jonah's heart, our heart. And so I want to look at two sort of contours here. Two, two reasons why I believe that largely we don't want God to show people mercy. The first is we want God on our agenda. When God works in his favor, when God shows him mercy, well, Jonah's excited. Jonah's happy. Save me from the, 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 the water. Save me from this scorching heat. Jonah always rejoices when God shows him mercy, but the moment God doesn't work on his agenda, he gets angry. And we can be the same way. And when God works on our agenda, when God blesses us in the way we want him to bless, when he works within the framework we think he should work in, we're happy. God, I want you to like the people I like, and I want you to judge the people that I want to judge. God, I want you to maintain my preferences, the things that I want. God, please give me those things. We want God on our agenda. And listen, we are so sure sometimes that he is. We can be so confident that God prefers our preferences. We can be so sure that God is for our agenda. And we can be so sure that we know where to draw the lines around salvation and judgment. We, we can be sure related to where blessing and cursing should go or God's fury or God's favor should go. And what the book of Jonah does for all of that, that attitude completely flips it on its head. See, we think, hey, we're the followers of God. We're the Christians. We have the Bible. So we know what God's agenda is. We know that God is on our side. We know that he is for us. And so we know he's up for our preferences. Hey, there's some truth in that, but it gets twisted. And this is what the book of Jonah shows us. Who's the problem in the book of Jonah? Jonah, the prophet of God, the Christian. The Christian is the problem in the book of Jonah. The Christian is the one who runs from God. The Christian is the one who rebels against God. The Christian is the one who experiences the rebuke of God. It's the pagan non-believer who experiences the grace and mercy of God. It's the pagan non-believer who turns and repents of sin in faith. And so when we put God on our agenda, when we are so sure God is on our agenda, we get angry. We get hardened. We get calloused when he isn't. And when he shows mercy to people, we don't think he should show mercy. Man, we throw fits. And we withdraw from sharing the gospel and making disciples. The second contour, and I think this is really the biggest reason, so I want to camp out here for a few minutes, is we want preferred status. Here's what I mean. See, when God shows Nineveh mercy... This removes Jonah's status both morally and positionally. Or I should say preferred status, morally and positionally. Because before, Nineveh was the enemy. Assyria was the enemy. And so Jonah could say, I have the moral high ground. I'm righteous. They're evil. I, am, I belong to God. I'm God's, God is for me. He's against them. But the moment God shows Nineveh mercy, all that goes out the window. 
Jonah no longer has the moral high ground. Jonah no longer stands in this preferred status. Now Nineveh has God's favor. Now Nineveh belongs to God. Now they are the ones walking out righteousness and repentance and faith. And so Jonah loses his preferred status. Look, the people of Nineveh were certainly guilty of attacks and harm against Israel. But now that they repented, Israel can no longer point at them as the bad guy. Jonah can no longer point at them and say, I'm better than you. And look, when we desire to, to hold on to our preferred status, when we want that more than we want God to show mercy, we lose compassion. Our hearts become hard. This is the Lord's point to Jonah in verses 10 through 11. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in night and perished in the night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Jonah has pity on the plant. And the word pity here in the Hebrew means moved with compassion, weeping over something with strong care. Jonah is crying over this plant. He is so heartbroken over it, withering and dying. Jonah has this strong emotional reaction to a plant being eaten by a worm, a plant that he had no investment in. He didn't tend to it and care for it. And a plant that he had encountered for like a day. And if Jonah gets that worked up over his little chia pet, should not God care deeply about 120,000 souls? And so God's working from this least to greatest category here. He's saying, if you care so much about this plant, should I not care for people even more? And if people aren't enough, how about animals? Because they're even more valuable than plants. Jonah weeps over a dead plant because it gives him this sense of blessed preferred status. God weeps over people who are lost and dying, and Jonah has written off for judgment. What a contrast. God also says that the people of Nineveh don't know their right hand from their left. This is an expression meaning they are completely lost, blind to their spiritual condition, completely lacking in knowledge or wisdom or power to do anything about it. They're completely unable to fix their problems. Now, this doesn't mean that God's letting Nineveh off the hook. He was going to consign them to judgment. He, Jonah brought a message of judgment, so God was prepared to judge them. But he has compassion on them. He has compassion on the fact that they are blind and in a helpless state. He's not unmoved. He sees that they are trapped and blinded by sin with no way out but for grace and mercy, and he moves to save them. In what way do you hold on to preferred status? In what way do you hold on to moral high ground in the sense that I'm on God's side or he's on my side and not on their side? In what sense do you hold on to moral high ground where you can say, I am better than someone. I am morally better or I am spiritually better or I, am, I have a, circumstantially I have done a better job in life. You see what happens, church, when we hold on to preferred status. It makes our hearts hardened and calloused and indifferent to those who need Jesus. 
when we would rather see ourselves as better than them, we don't look on them with compassion as God does. And we will judge them. We, we will be quick to think that all the good that we have is because of our moral effort. We'll, we'll start to believe this. We'll start to believe that the good in my life is because I am morally superior or I have made morally good decisions, or I am theologically strong, or I am spiritually strong, or I have worked hard and gotten a job and worked hard at raising a family and worked hard in my marriage and um, saved money well, and I've made good decisions all throughout my life. And so we'll just start seeing that everything good in our life is because of our efforts. And then when we look at all the broken people in the world, we'll say, why can't they get their act together? And we'll start judging people. We start judging people that are homeless. We start judging people who are addicts. We start judging single moms that are on welfare. Okay, let's not go so extreme. You'll just start, you'll start judging your friend who's constantly in marriage conflict. Or you start judging your friend that their kids can't seem to be, ever be obedient. Or you'll start judging people who always have money problems. Or maybe you'll judge people that always have work problems. Or you'll judge that friend that keeps bouncing from relationship to relationship. All that to say... We just start judging people when we think we are responsible for the good in our life. And then the solutions we start offering, man, get it together, be better, make better decisions, be more faithful, go to church more, read your Bible more, learn more theology, stop sinning. In all of those solutions, what are we doing? We are saying, be like me, be more like me. And we position ourselves above them with no compassion and no mercy because it keeps us in this preferred status. Look, sin certainly does bring misery. Sin certainly does have consequences. But do you think you're any less a sinner? Do you think that you're in any less need of mercy and grace and forgiveness Look, hear me on this. It could just be that your sin is less outwardly messy. It could just be that your sin doesn't display itself in mess in front of everybody. But let me tell you, I guarantee your sin is making a mess somewhere. And so it doesn't matter whether you are a homeless, drug-addicted prostitute living on the street or you're the perfect family with three kids, the house, the car, good job, financially stable, you all are absolutely in need of the grace and mercy of God. We all are, church. And also, any good that you experience in your life, that is a blessing. That is the mercy and grace of God on your life. That is not because you have performed so well for God. And I want to say, even for those of you who don't profess faith in Christ, the blessings that you have, those are from God. You may not acknowledge that, but those are from God. And, and don't misunderstand. It doesn't mean, oh, must, God and I must be good. No, those blessings are meant to cause you to draw near to God. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And so no matter where we slice it, church, These things are of the mercy and grace of God, not our preferred status. It's not because you are morally superior. It's not because you know more theology or know more of the Bible. 
It's the mercy and grace of God. And when we forget that we are absolutely and always in the need of mercy, when we think the good that we have is because we have earned it, when God shows mercy to those who have done nothing to earn it or deserve it, and then we get mad and we find it unfair or unjust, we grow bitter and we begin to withhold the message of the gospel, which is the free grace and mercy of God. We withhold that from people. If I can press a little bit further here, here's another way preferred status plays out. Like when Nineveh repents, Jonah also loses his status as the one who has been hurt and oppressed and wounded. The one who's been victimized and sinned against. Like if Nineveh repents, Jonah now has to deal with them in a more complex manner. Forgiveness, reconciliation, new, more complex political relationships. This makes things much more difficult. He can't just keep them at arm's length with a heart just kind of resigning them to judgments. So let me be clear about something. I'm not saying that dealing with the way people have hurt us is easy. I'm not trying to minimize pain and wounds and the ways you've been sinned against. I'm not saying just snap your fingers, forgive people, and move on with your life. I'm not trying to minimize the complexity. But I'm telling you that we need to consider how we can find our identity, our preferred status as victim and hurt and wounded rather than finding identity in Christ. We can find comfort in that identity rather than finding comfort in Christ. In our culture, being the victim, being the wounded, automatically raises you onto the moral high ground. There's a sense of rightness. There's almost a sense that you can't touch someone, you can't criticize someone when they stand in that place. And so it is so tempting for us to find our sense of righteousness, our sense of rightness in this identity rather than in Jesus Christ. Look, if God showing someone mercy challenges your identity, challenges your comforts, upsets your sense of rightness, then I guarantee you're putting your identity in something other than Jesus. And look, in many ways... Life can be much easier spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, and relationally when we can keep our preferred status, when we can sort of hold on to this identity as the good guy or the wounded victim. It doesn't make life completely easy, but in some ways it makes it easier. And holding on to this status is going to keep you from God, keep you from wanting God to show mercy and keep you from making disciples because you'll end up boxing out the difficulties and complexities that come with embracing relationships that require dropping those identities, embracing forgiveness, and extending mercy. Hear me on that. We can withhold God's mercy. We can get upset when God shows mercy because it's going to make our life more difficult, more messy, more challenging. God, just leave them over in that corner because I don't want to have to deal with this. And so we so often would prefer God not show mercy. So often, harden our hearts and keep, people's, keep people at arm's length. This is why we don't want God to extend mercy. So this final question, do we? In the midst of his anger, Jonah is confronted. He's haunted by a question from God. Do you do well to be angry? 
Jonah, is it right for you to be angry when I pour out my mercy on someone? Is it right for you to be angry that I have shown love and grace and forgiveness to Nineveh? Have you forgotten the mercy I showed you? Have you forgotten the way that I rescued you from the sea and have shown you even kindness in the midst of this desert? Do you do well to be angry? This is the same question for us. Church, do we do well to be angry? Have we forgotten God's mercy to us? Church, is not mercy important? Is not mercy more important than our preferred status? More important than our comforts? More important than chasing after the the things of this world that will vanish as if a vapor? Church, is not mercy one of the most valuable things that we could ever offer someone and live for? Because praise God, mercy is important to the Lord. Praise God that he cares deeply about mercy. This is what Psalm 103 tells us. And this is really where Jonah is throwing this back at God, but listen to this put in its proper context. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God is merciful in abounding in steadfast love. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He doesn't look at our pride and our sin and our rebellion and all the misery and the mess that we make and go, well, you deserve it. Live in it. No, he reaches into the very pit of our lives and saves us. He rescues us. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He sees us bound in our sin. He sees us wallowing in our misery and he has compassion and he shows us mercy. And his mercy is most beautifully and powerfully expressed through Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is this. Though we are rebellious sinners who do not deserve his mercy, he has poured out his mercy on us. God is merciful. Here's what Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 tells us. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The two most beautiful words in scripture, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Look, yes, God righteously judges sin as we saw last week. Yes, our, our sin deserves his wrath and his judgment, but he doesn't leave us there. We may want to leave people there. We may want to consign people there, but God does not leave us there. He has shown us great mercy. He is rich in mercy. And so listen, he has been merciful to you, liberals. He has been merciful to you, Trump supporters. He has been merciful to you who are corrupt in your political ways. 
He's been merciful to you, abortion doctors. He's been merciful to you, atheists and Muslims and New Age mystics. He's been merciful to you, addicts and abusers. He's been merciful to you, sexually immoral. He's been merciful to you, liars and manipulators. He's been merciful to you that are prideful and arrogant and greedy. He's been merciful to you who would take advantage and be lazy. No matter your sin, no matter the ways that you have rebelled, God has been merciful to you through Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is he has made a way for your sins to be forgiven, for you to be transformed, for you to be loved, for you to be brought into the family of God. God was unmerciful to Christ so he could be merciful to you. Jesus has taken the full punishment of our sin. This is the good news of the gospel. And guess what? God loves to show mercy. As Micah 7.18 tells us, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Mercy isn't a drudge to God. Mercy isn't something God is reluctant to show and like, well, if I have to, I might as well. No, God rejoices in being merciful to you. He is abundant in his mercy. It's glorious and it is powerful and it is life transforming. Look, God spared no expense to save you. God spared no expense to show mercy. He sent his very son to die in your place. And Jesus willingly went to the cross. He didn't stand on his preferred status as the son of God. No, he became a servant and humbled himself to be brutally killed so that God could show mercy to you. Jesus willingly went to the cross to show how merciful God is. Jesus willingly went to the cross to love his people and show that his love is full of grace and mercy. This is who our God is, church. This is the God who saved Nineveh. This is the God who saved you. This is God's agenda. Mercy, salvation, renewal. And so Jonah ends on this question. If you notice, the book of Jonah doesn't resolve. It, it, it hangs, it leaves the, the issue open. There's this question that sort of haunts us as readers. Are we going to have a heart like Jonah? Are we going to have a heart like God? Are we going to have a heart that is hardened to those who need mercy? Are we going to become angry and judge God's character when he pours out mercy and blessing on people? Because we want to hold on to our preferred status and we want God to be on our agenda. Or are we going to find our identity in Christ? Are we going to be set free by the mercy that God has shown us? Are we going to see that all the good that is in my life, all the blessings, all the, the things that I have been able to accomplish, anything that is worthy of praise in my life, God has poured that out on me because he is merciful. And in that, is that going to bring freedom for us? Freedom to rejoice, freedom to love, freedom to share the gospel and hold out the promises to people. Even those who we may see as worthy of judgment, either, even those who we may see as enemies and who oppose us. Can we rejoice? Can we welcome in those that God has shown mercy to? May the culture of First City Church, may the culture of our hearts reflect the merciful heart of God. Amen.